God, he still sent his only begotten son. Well, as we are just uh, less than a week away now from Thanksgiving, uh, there's a tendency sometimes for preachers to feel obligated to preach a message that's in step with the calendar or the holiday or the season, and many times uh, God has led that way, but he didn't this week. And so I want to preach a message tonight uh, as God enables me to do so uh, on a topic that I think we all wrestle with at times, and we certainly wrestle with uh, even going into uh, the holiday season. But before I, before I get into this too much, I see Larry standing up, and I want to forget if any kids would like to go downstairs uh, for children's worship, we invite you to go on down with, with Mr. Larry. He'll take you down. Uh, if you'd like to stay up here with your families, we certainly encourage you to do that as well. Uh, but we will dismiss the kids now as I get into this message titled, When God is Silent, He is Not Still. When God is silent, He is not still. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew tonight, Matthew chapter 15. And as you find in your place, I want to ask you uh, a question. For those of you that are married or in relationships or have been in relationships, uh, has there ever been a time when you've had an argument or a disagreement and the response from one or both of you was to give each other the silent treatment. That is often a worse punishment than arguing back and forth. The silent treatment uh, is, is a very difficult response sometimes. Uh, another thing in the world that we live in today, what about when you send someone a text or an email and get no response? Waiting and waiting and waiting. Sometimes you can't respond, I understand that. But, you know, when you send someone a text or call or message and, and get no response, uh, that's silence. Have you ever come home and opened up the door and yelled out for someone and got no answer? You know, that feeling of expecting someone to be there and calling out and the silence only answers you back. In those moments of silence, how do we feel? What is our response to that? I want to look tonight uh, at someone who cried out to God, and the initial response was silence. So if you found your place in the Gospel of Matthew, and you're able to, one last time, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read from verse 21 to verse 28 from Matthew 15. It says there, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I want you to see verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Father, we come to you again tonight asking you to speak into our lives through your word. 
And Father, for those here tonight that may be in that season of silence, may they find hope and encouragement to know that while silence is often a response that we get from you, you're never inactive, you're never unloving, and you're never absent. So Lord, help us tonight to draw strength and encouragement and hope from your word and more than that, from who you are, from your very nature and character that never fails. For God is love, and therefore everything he does is loving. And not one sparrow falls to the ground that he's not aware of. So Lord, may we rest in your sovereignty and your providence as you take over this service and have your way in it. And we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The poet... Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a famous poem called Evangeline. And in that poem, one of the verses says this. He says, Multitudinous echoes arose and died in the distance. And when the echoes had ceased, like a sense of pain, there was only silence. There are seasons in the Christian life where the Good Shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures, and He does lead us beside the still waters. And there are other seasons where that same God takes us through the wilderness of Sinai and makes us wonder what we will eat and where our water will come from next and why we are wandering around in this dry, barren place. The same God takes us through both places. And we come to a text tonight where Jesus is just leaving a place called Gennesaret. It is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. If you know the story in the previous chapter, Jesus tells Peter to step out of the boat, and Peter walks on the water. So that account has just happened. And now Jesus leaves that region and goes probably 25, 30 miles north to a region called Tyre and Sidon. Completely, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is completely outside of Jewish territory. He completely removes himself from outside of any Jewish territory and goes far north to a place known as Phoenicia, a dwelling place of the Canaanites who were enemies of God. And this is the place where he goes. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would Jesus go to a place like this? Well, there are several reasons. One was to get away from the Pharisees and the scribes as his time was drawing nearer to his crucifixion and laying down his life. He wanted to get alone with his disciples. He needed some time to just recharge from the ministry. But more than that, there was a woman and a daughter that needed help. And Jesus went out of his way because in his providence he knew that there was someone there that he was going to minister to. And even on a bigger scale than that, it shows us a picture that Jesus up until this time had been ministering to the Jews, to his people. But the door was swinging open for the Gentiles. That the gospel was not only for the Jew, but for the Greek. And so he is opening the door that whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. So all those things are encapsulated in what we see Jesus doing. And in verse 22, we see that this woman comes seeking Jesus. She's probably heard of His fame. She hears that He is in her area, and she comes seeking Him. She knows that perhaps if anyone can help, it is this Jesus. And we come to verse 23. All of her expectation, all of her hope, all of her desire is resting on this one man. 
And she cries out to him for help for her child. And what does verse 23 say? He did not answer her a word. A desperate daughter and a silent Savior. And confusion, I'm sure, filled her heart when she came before him and asked. Theologians wrestle with these types of things and call it divine hiddenness. When God appears to be silent, when He appears to be absent, it's an a age-old philosophical debate. It ties into the problems of evil and suffering. If God is good, if God is just, why does He allow pain and suffering? Divine hiddenness is another thing that many folks, Christian and non-Christian alike, at times wrestle with and wonder why God appears to be so silent in the midst of our pain. It's certainly something that folks throughout the Scriptures wrestled with. It's not something that we alone in our age grapple with, and they had no understanding of it. The oldest book in the Scriptures is Job, and Job wrestled with it. In Job 30, verse 20, here's his words. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. That is the heart of someone that is seeking for God to intervene and is not getting an answer. In Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, which means that while David, who is the author, was speaking of his current situation, it also had a prophetic future application where we see these words being uttered by Christ on the cross. But in Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I need you, and you're absent or appear to be absent. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is the man after God's own heart, the future king of Israel, who's crying out for help and getting no answers. So we see Job, and we see David, and we see a Canaanite woman, and they're crying out in these moments of pain, And they're all receiving the same response. Silence. Nothing. At least on the surface. That's what it appears. It appears that there is no answer. So what do we know about God? What can we draw from the Scriptures when it comes to God? Let's look at a couple things. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, we see there that no one has ever seen God. So in the physical sense, since God is spirit, He doesn't have a body, so no one has ever physically looked upon God. If we go back to the book of Exodus, you remember that Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock while God passed by, and he could only see Him as He went past in His glory. And then Moses' face shone just from Him passing by. No one can look upon God. No one has physically seen God. So in that sense, when we talk about the silence of God, it's not as though we're going to sit down and have a face-to-face like I can with all of you. He doesn't inhibit and inhabit a body in that sense. What about the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 24, Can a man hide himself in secret so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth? Can a man hide himself? David says something like this similar, Where can I go from your presence? 
If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I descend into the depths of the earth, you're there. To the east, to the west. That is God's omnipresence. Meaning that God is at all places and all times. And so we can, in the sense, escape the presence of God. He is everywhere. Even though we don't see Him in the physical sense, as John said, God is everywhere at all times. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, and as he was there, he, he saw the brilliant men of that time, uh, the men of Athens. And as he looked at this monument that they sent up, and it said, to the unknown God. And Paul begins to talk to them and explain to them about who the real one true living God is. And he says in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verse 27, as he's having this conversation with them and explaining who this God is, one of the things that he says about God is that He is not far from any one of us. He's not far from any one of us. And finally, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of the natural created order, when we look, when we observe the heavens and the earth, the solar system, the birds, the trees, the oceans, the Grand Canyons, we see all these amazing things in creation, and they point us to a Creator. We may not know specifically who He is through just creation alone, but there's no denying that this is not an accident. That we didn't just happen through evolutionary process. That there wasn't just some explosion and chaos became order. That nothing created something. A divine mind created what we see. And in Romans 1.20, the Bible says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. He's saying when you observe the world and the universe and the created order, you have to come to the conclusion that there is a God. You must. To not come to that conclusion, or rather to deny that conclusion, uh, is, as the Bible says, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You are denying what deep down you know to be true. And so in those four Scriptures, we see that God is not able to be observed in the physical sense, and yet God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. That He's not, in fact, far from any one of us, even in this very moment. He indwells the believer, but even the unbeliever, He is not far at any moment from you. And we see in the created order that, in fact, God is real. And so those are important things to understand when we talk about the supposed silence of God. Because this woman in our text tonight was sitting in the very presence of God. She was standing next to Jesus, and yet there was silence. And for us tonight, according to the scriptures that we read, we are, in fact, in the very presence of God tonight. He's not out there, He's not up there, He is right here in this room. As a believer, He is in here with every one of us. And so, He can appear silent and yet be right next to you, right in you at that same time. And we're never forsaken by Him because He declares it Himself in His Word. I will never leave nor forsake you. And God cannot lie. If God were to lie, He would be a sinner 
and therefore he would not be worthy to be called God or to be worshipped. And so we draw those conclusions that silence cannot equate to absence. There may be seasons of silence, but that does not mean that God is absent. The silence is just simply how we perceive God in that moment. And certainly silence does not mean stillness. God does never take a day off. He does not go on vacation. He does not take a nap. The Bible says He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He holds the world together at all times. He holds our lives together. He's ruling and reigning from the throne. He is the head of the church, and He never takes a break from those things. So silence does not mean that God is not active. And it does not mean that we are alone. And so Jesus is traveling in our text. As we talked about, He goes north to Tyre and Sidon. And He's in this region, in this region rather, and He meets this lady, and we see this silence. Why? Why does God allow her to experience this? Why does He allow us to experience silence? I thought about that a lot this week. And I think as we look at the season that we're in, and if we're honest about ourselves, one of the easiest sins for us to fall into is complacency, right? We experience something, Caleb hit on it, we sang Amazing Grace. Sometimes we sing a song so much, it just becomes second nature to us. We lose, it loses to us some of the glory and splendor of it. Sometimes we come to church week in and week out and we lose the awe and amazement of what we're in fact getting an opportunity to do here, right? We read the Bible and we say, I've read that, I've seen that, I've done that, I've prayed, and it just becomes kind of haphazard action to us. And we get complacent in the way that we act toward it. I also think ungratefulness is another sin. We're blessed with so much in this country that we fail to give thanks for all the things that He gives us. And just the third one is presumption. We just presume that they're always going to be there. I'm always going to have a home. My car is always going to be out there and it's going to start. I'm going to have clothes and food and water and my health. And all those things are supposed to be there. And in a moment when they're taken away, we get angry with God. Why? Because those were our things. We're supposed to have those things, God. You owe us those things. How dare you remove them from me? And so we get complacent, ungrateful, and we presume that they'll always be there. And if you don't believe that, look at the season that we're in. On Thursday, we're going to gather around tables and we're going to hold hands and give thanks for the many blessings that God has provided for us, our family, our food, our homes. And then less than a few hours later, we're going to rush out of the house and trample people at Walmart to get more things that we don't need. And we laugh, but you know I'm right. You know I'm right. We're going to give thanks, and then a few hours later, we're going to go out to get more things. Right? It's who we are. It's who we are. We're never satisfied. We're always longing and looking for something else. And I believe that that's why there's a saying that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I believe there's also a reason why there's a saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. Absence does make the heart grow fonder. And familiarity breeds contempt. When we have something all the time, we just expect it. We forget to give thanks for it. 
But when those things are taken away, there's a longing that eventually, hopefully, arises. It makes our heart long for something. And so God is never gone. We've already looked at that. But his silence is good for us. It's not that he's up there with some sadistic pleasure that he likes to see us uncomfortable as he's silent. And it's certainly not from an apathetic indifference that he doesn't care about us. There's a reason and a purpose behind everything that he does. And his silence is to push us, to drive us to a desperation. It's a longing that he's trying to create in us. Because longing will make us ask. And emptiness will make us seek. And silence will make us knock. Sound familiar? Luke eleven nine. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But sometimes God has to drive us to do those things and push us into a position where we will do those things because presumption, ungratefulness, and complacency causes us to ignore all those things. And so, in the season of silence, as I said, we're tempted to believe that God isn't there or that God doesn't care. And we've already seen from the Scriptures that that is not the case. That's simply how we are perceiving things. The created order and the created world screams otherwise. His past faithfulness to us proves that He's there. We know from what He's done for us before, and He will do again, that He is there. And His Word declares that He is not going to leave us, that He loves His people. And if we're honest, our perception is unreliable. We know that we've looked at things and been sure that it was one way and found out later that it wasn't what we thought. Our perception isn't reliable. Our emotions are untrustworthy. We certainly know that we can be emotionally unstable and all over the map. So we can't trust our emotions to always be a safe guide for us, right? Even our experiences at time are subjective. What I experience could be totally different than what Sam experiences. Don't believe that? Go to a restaurant. Somebody loves one place, the same person goes there and gets the same meal and hates it, right? Our experiences, we can go through the same things and have two totally different responses. None of those things then are foolproof uh, ways to look at things. Either God himself is the ultimate source of truth and knowledge or everything is subjective and random. You can't have both. There's got to be an ultimate source or everything is just happenstance and we make it up as we go along. But according to the Scripture, God is, in fact, the source of all wisdom and all knowledge. In Colossians 2.3, says, In Him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. None of us know everything about every subject, and no one does, because we're finite creatures. To know absolutely everything about every situation and circumstance would require someone to be all-knowing and all-present. Who is that? God, right? He is the source of all truth and knowledge. But I think it's interesting that in the silence, this woman will not quit. She comes to Jesus begging for her daughter. And the answers are not a word. And she keeps on insisting. Why? Because the silence is meant to lead us to a desperation. It's meant to push us into the presence of Christ. And that's what we see in our text. He answers her not a word. And then she comes again. The disciples are saying, get rid of her. 
get her out of here. She continues to beg. He says, we don't take the bread and give it to the little dogs. That's not the word dog that meant a stray mongrel. It was the word for dog that meant a household pet. But nonetheless, probably not the most flattering comment to someone. And yet she continues to have faith and says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs at the table eat the crumbs from their master. She refuses to take no for an answer. She refuses to believe that this Jesus, who she's heard about, who is supposed to be so wonderful and so loving and so capable of meeting her needs, she refuses to leave without an answer. And Jesus, in verse 28, looks at her and says, O woman, great is your faith. You know, only two times in the Gospels Jesus told someone they had great faith? Her and the centurion. Only two times someone had great faith. But church, the good thing is you don't have to have great faith. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed, and Jesus said you can move mountains. So if you've come in here tonight and you've barely got enough faith to hang on, you've got enough. Because never in the Scripture does it depend on the size of your faith. It always depends on the object. And if your faith is in Christ, then whether it's a great faith or a mustard-sized faith, it's enough. Because Jesus is enough. And so she looks by faith through the silence and she trusts Him. And again, I can't imagine what her thoughts and her feelings and her emotions were like. Imagine ours as we try to analyze and rationalize what God is doing. Why is He not answering? Where is He? What's going on? Isaiah 55 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. You will drive yourself insane trying to figure out everything that God is doing, why He's doing it, when He's doing it, where He's doing it. It's not for you to know. If you knew everything, you'd be God. And you wouldn't need faith. Right? And maybe one of these days, if you believe in Mormon faith, you'll get your own planet, your own universe, and you can be God. But I wouldn't bank on that. So since this is the only universe and the only planet, and there's only one God, you're going to have to trust Him sometimes with the things you don't understand. Because He's got it all under control. He's got it all under control, even when it seems like that's not the case. And so, Jesus commends this woman for her faith. What is faith? What is faith, really? The Bible gives us a pretty good definition, I believe, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The King James says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The ESV says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love the Amplified Version, which kind of brings out multiple meanings. It's more of a study type of uh, translation, not one that you would just use to read, per se. But it says this, Faith is the confirmation of things hoped for or things divinely guaranteed. You see, when we use the word hope, sometimes we we think, well, I hope that it doesn't snow tonight. But we're not sure. We're, we're, We're optimistic at best, but we're not certain. The Bible describes hope as a confident expectation. It's not, perhaps this is going to happen, it's going to happen. We're, just, we're, we're basically just waiting for the result. Okay? So faith is the assurance, the confirmation of the things guaranteed and the evidence 
of things not seen. And it goes on and says, Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. This woman had faith, even in the silence, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my daughter needs help. And He's going to give it to her. He's going to give it to her. When you pray to God, do you believe that the answer is coming? Or do you say, well, God, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I guess. I don't know if you care or if you're going to. I mean, it's just me again, and you probably don't love me. And you probably... That's not coming to Him in faith. That's not understanding who He is. You've got to lay hold of God. You've got to grab a hold of His garment and say, I'm not letting go until you touch me. I'm not letting go until I get my deliverance. Right? And if I die, I'm going to die holding on to the hem of your garment. And that is faith that lays hold of the promises of Scripture. I want to play, I don't normally do this, but this song so touched me this week. And I want to see, Chad, I don't know if this will play. I hope it will. This is a song by a fellow named Andrew Peterson. And it's called The Silence of God. This, this video, if it will play, has the lyrics on it. And I want you to just take a moment in the silence as this plays and listen to the words and read the words as this plays. And then we'll wrap up this message. It's enough to drive a man crazy It'll break a man's faith It's enough to make him wonder If he's ever been seen when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heavens only answer is the silence of God and it'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart
Fifty-five years ago, this year, Simon and Garfunkel wrote one of my favorite songs, The Sound of Silence. And that sounds like a contradiction or an oxymoron. How can silence have a sound? Well, in the book of 1 Kings, there's a man named Elijah. And he has just had a battle with one of the great kings of that time, the evil king of that time, and had a great victory over the prophets of Baal. And as he goes off into the wilderness, I want you to see something in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12. Some events take place. And it says in in verse 12 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings, it says, after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The King James says a still small voice. I like what the New American Standard says. It translates that, the sound of a gentle blowing. The Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, when it translates that portion of text, that the King James says a still small voice or the sound of a gentle blowing, it literally means that Elijah heard the sound of silence. Because silence is not empty, church. God speaks in the silence. He's there with us, pushing us in desperation so that we would long for Him more. And in the quiet, our faith has to see. And hope has to take hold of the promises that cannot fail. If you're in a season of silence tonight, church, individually or as a family, God has not left you. God is there. And maybe He's waiting for you to cry out and not quit until by faith you lay hold of Him. Let's pray tonight. Lord God, we thank You for the wonderful gift of silence. Because Lord, in those silent moments... You're there, reaching out to us, speaking to us, drawing us. And Lord, tonight, maybe we are away from you. Maybe we don't even know you. God, I pray that tonight you would draw those to you that need you so desperately. Father God, that you would speak to them. Let them hear your voice, even if it's in the silence. And let them come and surrender their life to you in faith. Let them take hold of your promises and not give up until you answer. And most of all, if they're lost tonight, God, let them come and take the water of life freely. Let them drink from the fountain that never runs dry. 
so that their sins can be washed away and their souls saved. God, we thank you and we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we sing tonight.